This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson. Oomphal in the Sky by H. Beam Piper. Part 3 When they emerged from the escalators, Alpha was just touching the western horizon, and Beta was a little past Zenith. The ship was moored on contragravity beside the landing stage, her gangplank run out. The Shunun, who had gone up ahead, had all stopped short and were staring at her. Then they began gabbling among themselves, overcome by the wonder of being about to board such a monster and ride on her. She was the biggest ship any of them had ever seen. Maybe a few of them had been on small freighters. Many of them had never been off the ground. They didn't look or act like cynical charlatans or implacable enemies of progress and enlightenment. They were more like a lot of schoolboys whose teacher is taking them on a surprise outing. "'Bet this'll be the biggest day in their lives,' Travis said. "'Oh, sure. This'll be a grandfather story ten generations from now.' I can't get over the way they made up their minds down there, Edith Shaw was saying. Why, they just went and talked for a few minutes and came back with a decision. They hadn't any organization or any place to maintain on an organizational pecking order. Nobody was obliged to attack anybody else's proposition in order to keep up his own status. The thought of the colonial government taking ten years not to build those storm shelters... Fox Travis was commenting on the ship now. "'I never saw that ship before. Didn't know there was anything like it on the planet. Why, you could lift a whole regiment, with supplies and equipment.' "'She's been laid up for the last five years, since the heat and the native trouble stopped the tourist business here. She's the old Hesperus, excursion craft. This sun-chasing trip we're about to make used to be a must for tourists here.' I thought she was something like that, with all the glassed observation deck forward. Who's the owner? Quanon Air Transport Limited. I told them what I needed her for, and they made her available, and furnished officers and crew and provisions for the trip. They were working to put her in commission while we were fitting up the fourth and fifth floors downstairs. You just asked for that ship, and they just let you have it? Edith Shaw was incredulous and shocked. They wouldn't have done that for the government. They want to see these native troubles stop, too. Bad for business. You know, selfish profit move. That's another social force it's a good idea to work with instead of against. The Shunun were getting aboard now, shepherded by the KNI officer and a couple of his men and some of the ship's crew. A couple of sepoys were lugging the big globe that had been brought up from below after them. Everybody assembled on the forward top observation deck, and Miles called for attention, and finally got it. He pointed out the three viewscreens mounted below the bridge, amidships. One on the left was turned to a pickup on top of the air terminal tower, 
where the Terran city, the military reservation, and the spaceport met. It showed the view to the west, with Alpha on the horizon. On the right, from the same point, gave a view in the opposite direction to the east. A middle screen presented a magnified view of the navigational globe on the bridge. View screens were no novelty to the Shunun. They were a very familiar type of umful. He didn't even need to do more than tell them that the little spot of light on the globe would show the position of the ship. When he was sure that they understood that they could see what was happening in Blue Lake while they were away, he called the bridge and ordered up ship, telling the officer on duty to hold her at five thousand feet. The ship rose slowly, turning toward the setting M. Giant. Somebody called attention that the views in the screens weren't changing. Somebody else said, "'Of course not. What we see for real changes because the ship is moving. What we see in the screens is what the oomphor on the big building sees, and it does not move. That is for real, as the oomphor sees it.' "'Nice going,' Edith said. "'Your class has just discovered relativity.' Travis was looking at the eastward view-screen. He stepped over beside Miles and lowered his voice. "'Trouble over there to the east of town. Big swarm of combat contragravity working on something on the ground. And something's on fire, too.' "'I see it. That's where those evacuees are camped. Why in blazes they had to bring them here to Blue Lake?' That had been EETA, too. When the solar tides had gotten high enough to flood the coastal area, the natives who had been evacuated from the district had been brought here because the native education people wanted them exposed to urban influences. About half of the Shunun who had been rounded up locally had come in from the tide-inundated area. Parked right in the middle of the Terran-type food production area, Travis was continuing. That was worrying him. Maybe he wasn't used to planets where the biochemistry wasn't terra-type, and a Terran would be poisoned, or at best starved to death, on the local food. Maybe as a soldier he knew how fragile even the best logistics system can be. It was something to worry about. Travis excused himself and went off in the direction of the bridge. Going to call HQ and find out what was happening. Excitement among the Shunun. They had spotted the ship on which they were riding in the westward screen. They watched it until it had vanished from sight of the seeing umfo, and by then were over the upland forests from whence they had been brought to Blue Lake. Now and then one of them would identify his own village, and that would start more excitement. Three infantry troop carriers and a squadron of air cavalry were rushing past the eastward pickup in the right-hand screen. Another fire had started in the trouble area. The crowd that had gathered around the globe that had been brought aboard began calling for Mayor Schielbeer to show them how they would go around the world and what countries they would pass over. Edith accompanied him and listened while he talked to them. She was bubbling with happy excitement now. It had just dawned on her that Shunun were fun. None of them had ever seen the mountains along the western side of the continent, except from a great distance. Now they were passing over them. The ship had to gain altitude, and even then make a detour around one snow-capped peak. 
the whole hundred and eighty-four rushed to the starboard side to watch it as they passed. The ocean, half an hour later, started a rush forward. The score or so of them from the tidewater knew what an ocean was, but none of them had known that there was another one to the west. Miles' view of the education program of the EETA, never bright at best, became even dimmer. The young men who had gone to the Terran schools, who listens to them? They are fools. There were a few islands off the coast. The Shunun identified them on the screen globe, and on the one on the deck. Some of them wanted to know why there wasn't a spot of light on this globe, too. It didn't have the oomphal inside to do that. That was a satisfactory explanation. Edith started to explain about the orbital beacon stations on planet and the radio beams, and then stopped. "'I'm sorry. I'm not supposed to say anything to them,' she apologized. "'Oh, that's all right. I wouldn't go into all that, though. We don't want to overload them.' She asked permission, a little later, to explain why the triangle tip of the Arctic continent, which had begun to edge into sight on the screen globe, couldn't be seen from the ship. When he told her to go ahead, she got a platinum half-sol piece from her purse, held it on the globe from the classroom, and explained about the curvature, and told them they could see nothing farther away than the circle the coin covered. It was beginning to look as though the psychological warfare experiment might show another unexpected success. There was nothing, after the islands passed, but a lot of empty water. The Shunun were getting hungry, but they refused to go below to eat. They were afraid they might miss something. So their dinner was brought up on deck for them. Miles and Travis and Edith went to the officers' dining room back of the bridge. Edith, by now, was even more excited than the Shunun. They're so anxious to learn. She was having trouble adjusting to that. That was dead against EETA doctrine. But why wouldn't they listen to the teachers we sent to the villages? You heard old Chatresh, the fellow with the pornographic sculpture and the yellow robe. These young twerps act like fools, and sensible people don't pay any attention to fools. What's more, they've been sent out indoctrinated with the idea that Shunun are a lot of lying old fakes, and the Shunun resent that. You know, they're not lying old fakes. Within their limitations, they're honest and ethical professional people. Oh, come now. I know I think they're sort of wonderful, but let's don't give them too much credit. I'm not. You're doing that. Huh? She looked at him in amazement. Me? Yes, you. You know better than to believe in magic, so you expect them to know better, too. Well, they don't. You know that under the macroscopic world of the senses, there exists a complex of biological, chemical, and physical phenomena down to the subnucleonic level. They realize that there must be something beyond what they can see and handle, but they think it's magic. Well, as a race, so did we, until only a few centuries pre-atomic. These people are still lower Neolithic, a hunting people who have just learned agriculture. Where we were twenty thousand years ago. You think any glib-talking Quan can hang a lot of rags, bones, and old iron onto himself, go through some impromptu mummery, and set up as a Shunu? Well, he can't. The Shunun are a hereditary caste. 
a Shunu father will begin teaching his son as soon as he can walk and talk, and keep on teaching him till he's the age equivalent of a graduate M.D. or a science Ph.D. Well, what all is there to learn? The theoretical basis and practical applications of sympathetic magic. Action at a distance by one object on another. Homeopathic magic, the principle that things which resemble one another will interact. For instance, there's an animal the natives call a shinf. It has an excrescence of horn on its brow like an arrowhead, and it arches its back like a bow when it jumps. Therefore, a shimph is equal to a bow and arrow, and for that reason the Quans made their bowstrings out of shimph gut. Now they use tensilon because it won't break as easily or get wet and stretch. So they have to turn the tensilon into shimph gut. They used to do that by drawing a picture of a shimph on the spool, and then the traders began labeling the spools with pictures of shimph. I think my father was one of the first to do that. Then there's contagious magic. Anything that's been part of anything else, or come in contact with it, will interact permanently with it. I wish I had a saw for every time I've seen a quan pull the wad out of a shot shell, pick up a pinch of dirt from the footprint of some animal he's tracking, put it in among the buckshot, and then crimp the wad in again. Everything a quan does has the same sort of magical implications. It's the Shunu's business to know all this, to be able to tell just what magical influences have to be produced, and what influences must be avoided. And there are circumstances in which magic simply will not work, even in theory. The reason is that there is some powerful counter-influence at work. He has to know when he can't use magic, and he has to be able to explain why. And when he's theoretically able to do something by magic, he has to have a plausible explanation why it won't produce results. Just as any highly civilized and ethical Terran M.D. has to be able to explain his failures to the satisfaction of his late patient's relatives. Only a Shunu doesn't get sued for malpractice. He gets a spear stuck in him. Under those circumstances, a caste of hereditary magicians is literally bred for quick thinking. These old gaffers we have aboard are the intellectual top crust among the natives. Any of them can think rings around your government school products. As for preying on the ignorance and credulity of the other natives, they're only infinitesimally less ignorant and credulous themselves. But they want to learn, from anybody who can gain their respect by respecting them. Edith Shaw didn't say anything in reply. She was thoughtful during the rest of the meal, and when they were back on the observation deck, he noticed that she seemed to be looking at the Shunun with new eyes. In the screen views of Blue Lake, Beta had already set, and the sky was fading. Stars had begun to twinkle. There were more fires, one close to the city in the east, a regular conflagration, and fighting had broken out in the native city itself. He was wishing now that he hadn't thought it necessary to use those screens. The Shunun were noticing what was going on in them and talking among themselves. Travis, after one look at the situation, hurried back to the bridge to make a screen call. After a while he returned, almost crackling with suppressed excitement. Well, it's finally happened. Mace forced Kovac to declare martial rule. 
he said in an exultant undertone. "'Forced him?' Edith was puzzled. "'The army can't force the civil government.' "'He threatened to do it himself, intervene and suspend civil rule. "'But I thought only the Navy could do that.' "'Any planetary commander of armed forces can, in a state of extreme emergency.' I think you'll agree that this emergency is about as extreme as they come. Kovac knew that Maith was unwilling to do it. He'd have to stand court-martial to justify his action, but he also knew that a governor-general who has his colony taken away from him by the armed forces never gets it back. He's finished. So it was just a case of the weaker man in the weaker position yielding. Where does that put us? We are a civilian scientific project. You are under orders of General Maith. I am under your orders. I don't know about Edith. Can I draft her? Or do I have to get you to get General Maith to do it? Listen, don't do that, Edith protested. I still have to work for Government House, and this martial rule won't last forever. They'll all be prejudiced against me. You can shove your government job in the airlock, Miles told her. You'll have a better one with the planet-wide news, at half again as much pay. And after the shake-up at Government House, about a year from now, you may be going back as director of EETA. When they find out on Terra just how badly this government has been mismanaging things, there'll be a lot of vacancies. End of Part 3